listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. I do want to invite you also to open your Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. We will be in the first 15 verses. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. One of the things that my family got to do this summer and really enjoy was swimming. We swam a lot. By we, I mean my children swam a lot. And I was just the overweight dad watching them on the poolside. But we got to swim a lot. And my daughter, Olivia, she's five, excuse me, five and a half. She's adamant. She is five and a half. But we got to see her progress over the summer in her swimming. She went from just being able to swim in the shallow end all the way to going to the deep end and swimming there. And then even going a step further, she went to the Willard Pool and jumped off the high dive at the Willard Pool. That's crazy. I get nervous jumping off the high dive. You can imagine this little, you know, this little five and a half year old that weighs maybe like 20 pounds flying off of that thing. But she is fearless. But what would happen in this time of growing, and many of you who are parents are familiar with this, but she would constantly beg for my attention. Hey, Dad, hey, Dad, watch. Watch what I'm doing, right? And so she would constantly beg for my attention during those stages of swimming. And so I would always need to make sure that I was watching her. Right? Okay, Livia, I'm watching you. Go ahead, do it. And then she'd be watching me all the way to the pool edge, jump off, and the first thing she comes out of the water is looking straight at me. She wanted to know I was looking at her. And so I did enjoy watching her. I enjoyed it and often enjoyed lifting my eyes towards her with some joy and really growing affection. There's that that in you when you become a father or even just, it doesn't matter when you have a relationship with a younger person and they draw their attention to you and you get to pour your affection out on them, it deepens, it grows. And so in this case, I love seeing my kids do things. And there are times they ask me to watch them, but there's a lot of time they don't even know I'm watching. But I am, and it brings in me this real genuine love for them all. Now, for some of you ladies in the room, you're like, See, he's a good dad. You need to follow his example. Right? Let me just go ahead and uh, debauch that completely. I miss my kids more than I actually watch them. I fail often. I do often get tired of the, hey, dad, watch this. Because I'm like, I just want to lay here and relax. Okay? So I'm not the, the dad of the year. But I think we have to ask ourselves, where do we learn such things? Where do we learn such behaviors as children and and as parents? I mean, even if you're not a parent, you were a child and you wanted that sort of attention. You wanted those sorts of eyes fixated on you. Well, where do you think that comes from? The desire to have compassionate eyes comes from your Father in heaven. You and I were made in the image and the likeness of our God. That desire is a godly desire. Ephesians chapter 2, excuse me, Exodus chapter 2 
kind of illustrates and examples that sort of fatherly love and compassion. Israel was enslaved to Egypt for a number of years. Harsh slavery. We may be familiar with that story. And at the end of Exodus chapter 2, it says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And here's, here it is. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. He saw them. He heard them. He knew them. He remembered them. Fast forward 4,000 years later, there's this longing in Israel for a Messiah in the days of Jesus. And even then, the Father sees. The Father hears. He knows. He remembers. Like a father to a child. Yes, I'm watching. I see this. I'm aware of this. Jesus coming to earth is the ongoing compassionate eyes of the Father upon His children. We have to remember, Jesus has been making the case up to this point. Everything He does, everything He says, everything about Him is a perfect reflection of the Father. He does nothing of His own accord, of His own will. His words are not His own. His actions are not His own. They are the Father's. And I would even say the compassion that Jesus will show is not His own, but it is the compassion of the Father working through Him. And so Jesus will act today with great compassion upon a very desperate crowd who is longing for some sort of prophetic Messiah ruler to come and rescue them from an oppressive government and rule. Very familiar to Exodus chapter 2. But we have to understand that this bunch of people, this crowd of people that Jesus is going to be responding to aren't these perfect, well-put-together people. Any more than our children aren't the perfect, well-put-together children, right? But they are our children nonetheless. These aren't the perfect bunch of people. In fact, this crowd of people, some of them will be the ones who are going to be screaming and crying out, crucify Him! Crucify Him! in the final days of His life. But even still, Jesus looks upon them with the eyes of the Father with great compassion. And so we're going to see the compassionate eyes of the Father through Jesus this morning. The compassionate eyes of the Father through Jesus. So I'm going to read this passage in its entirety and then we're going to walk through it. I have it broken down into four sections. I'll try to carry you along with me in that. So let's read verses 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 
200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Father, may we see your compassionate eyes as they fall upon us. Father, may we understand Your Word. May Your Word change us. May it encourage us. And we, we need help now to hear what it is You have to say. So be with us, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. And so the compassionate eyes of Jesus are on us in the wilderness, verses 1-4. through four. The compassionate eyes of Jesus are on us in the wilderness. And so after this, it says that Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. John's Gospel is not exactly known for its chronology, this sequence of events. This happened in this order, then this happened. But no, John's Gospel and the way that he writes is more theologically driven. He has a point here. And the reason I know that is because right before they cross the sea, there is this time where the disciples are sent out by twos to go cast out demons, to go heal the sick, to go call people to repentance. You see that in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 32. But John is not overlooking that story as though it is insignificant, as though it didn't happen. That's not the case. But the way that John is telling this story, remember, points us to the main thesis that in Jesus' name we would have life. So John is an evangelist in the way he's writing. He wants us to capture and understand that thesis. And so Jesus takes his crew after they had been with this Mass for a time after they had gone out, sent out the disciples by two, and he decided to go to the other side of the lake. And this other side of the lake is called Tiberius, which was named after a Roman emperor, Tiberius Caesar. And though the intent was to get away, to have some time with the disciples, a large crowd began to follow him because of all the signs that he was doing with the sick or on the sick. And so here it is. The, the crowds are seeing the signs, the wonders, the miracles of Jesus, and so they want to go and find him. But if we remember or recall last week, the significance of the signs. The signs are one of the witnesses that stand on the witness stand that testify of Jesus' credibility 
from the Father. The signs are not the goal in themselves. The signs are not the things we are to worship. The signs and the miracles are not the things we are to chase after. The signs, rather, point us to the reality that the Father has sent Jesus. The signs are supposed to highlight Jesus, make much of Jesus, not being made much of in in of themselves. But the people, they followed Him because of the signs. They wanted to experience it some more. So Jesus went up the mountain, and there He sat down with His disciples. And so Jesus goes away. I mean, He had a great opportunity on the other side of the sea to just start His megachurch right away. But He decided to head on across the sea to get away to rest. And so we begin to see really the humanity of Jesus. He needed to eat. He needed to get re-energized. He needed to rest. He needed to have downtime. He couldn't just be on all the time. And then we begin to see here in John's text how this story bends more theologically. This is the only miracle that all four Gospels have a recording of. They all have a recording of this miracle. And it is here, especially in John's Gospel, that we see in verse 4, now the Passover of the Feast of the Jews was at hand. Just this little tidbit of information is thrown in there in the midst of this. Well, if you read the book of John as a whole, there are three major areas where John highlights the Passover. This is the second of the three occurrences. The first one was in chapter 2 verse 13 and 23. The second one is here. And the third one is in chapter 11, verse 55. There's a theological theme that is going on. I like what D.A. Carson says. He says, The Passover feast was to the Palestinian Jews what the 4th of July is to Americans. It was a rallying point of intense nationalistic zeal. There was an aspect of the Passover being rightly celebrated and and God being rightly worshipped for what He has done, but it has over time evolved into this form of nationalism, this zeal among the people of uh, Israel, this pride, if you will. And that's fitting because we have seen the Jews in the prior verses misunderstanding Jesus, misunderstanding the Scripture, misunderstanding Moses, and Jesus highlights that reality. It's because their understanding of Scripture from the Old Testament has taken a political bend. They lost the skill and the art of rightly understanding the Word of God. Jesus was not looking to raise up a nationalistic zeal. He wasn't looking up to raise up rebels or cause a revolution within the nation. Well, not a political one anyways. Passover was a celebration of Israel being delivered from Egypt. A spotless lamb was offered up and sacrificed. The meat was shared among the body. The blood of the lamb was then blotched over the doorframe of each home. And as the blood was then poured over the doorframe, the destroyer would come in the middle of the night and pass over the homes that were covered in the blood of the spotless lamb. But the homes that were not covered in the blood of the spotless lamb lost their firstborn. This was the final thing 
that Pharaoh could endure and told Israel to get out of Egypt. Jesus, this is John's point, Jesus would be the perfect fulfillment of the Passover in this Gospel. Jesus wasn't looking to revolutionize the political landscape, but to revolutionize the hearts of men. The death of Jesus would be the death of the perfect, spotless Lamb. Right? These are just echoes of the Gospel throughout Scripture and it comes to perfect fulfillment here. The blood of Jesus would atone for all sins. The wrath of God would pass over those who have received Jesus by faith. Meaning the full wrath of God was poured out on Jesus on the cross instead of upon you and me. Jesus' death on the cross would set us free from the enslavement to sin and give us freedom in Christ. And though free, our sins, kind of like Pharaoh, because even though he told Israel to go, he still chased after them. He wanted to re-enslave them. Our sin, even in this life, will try to re-enslave us. But Jesus keeps us free until we enter into the eternal promised land. And after the Passover... After the Passover of Israel into, uh, uh, through the Red Sea, they land in the wilderness. And this is kind of the picture we're seeing today. This story of Israel, post-Red Sea, not quite yet promised land, but in the wilderness. And God has to provide for Israel in the wilderness, and He does so by providing manna, or bread from heaven. And so today's scene is a wilderness scene of of sorts. They're on the side of Tiberias, but they're not anywhere near the marketplace. They're not anywhere near a town. They're not anywhere near uh, people's homes. They are out in the open, right? They're out in the wilderness, if you will. It's during the springtime, so the grass is plush and green. The weather most likely very nice, but they are in a place of solitude. So Jesus is setting the stage for His discourse to the crowd that He is the bread of God who comes down from heaven. The bread of life. And that will happen in the latter part of this chapter. Chapter 6, verses 33 and even 51. Jesus is the Passover Lamb. We know this. But why do we continue to follow Him? Why do we follow Him? Israel came out of uh, out into the wilderness after the Passover. They watched the Lord crush their enemies in the Red Sea. They even watched the bodies float to shore. Crazy, unique in- imagery. But then they were even called to continue to follow the Lord in the wilderness. by Either by smoke or fire. By the cloud or fire. But why? Why follow Him? We've been saved by Jesus through faith. But here's the thing. We still are exiles. This is not our home. We're in the wilderness, so to speak, awaiting the day that we enter into that eternal promised land. So why do we still follow? Well, first, we are not to follow Him for the signs and miracles. That's not what we're going for here. We're not looking for the healing. We're not looking for the sign. We're not casting our fleece, as one brother in this church says all the time. 
we are to follow him because he leads us to the Father. We are following him because he leads us to the Father. And without him, we have no other way to the Father. We are to follow him because he remembers his promise to us that we will be with him forever. We're to follow him because he remembers his promise to us and we will be with him forever. When Jesus looks upon us or when the Father looks upon us, he says, I see you, I know you, and I remember the covenant promise through Jesus Christ. We follow him because his blood and life provided joy and hope for us in the now in the now of life and not just in the one to come. His blood is actually working now. We follow Jesus because wherever he goes, there is his grace towards us. Jesus never stops seeing us, knowing us, hearing us, remembering us. He lavishes us with His grace and mercy. Do you think God has forgotten you? Do you think He has forgotten you? He doesn't see you. He's unaware of your pains and struggles. You think He stopped looking, stopped hearing, stopped seeing? I want to remind you of a promise that Jesus is with us always. He's with us always to the end of the age. The scene in this passage shows the real humanity of Jesus. He needed rest. He needed time to replenish and to gain strength. And even in it all, He didn't drive His disciples away. He pulled them near to share life with them. Even the weary parts of life, He pulled them near. So church, your weariness, your struggle is no stranger to Jesus. Jesus understands. He's able to sympathize with us in every way. And so then go follow Him. Join in His rest. Know that Jesus pulls you near to listen to Him. He's not stiff-arming you. He's not saying, good luck. He's saying, come near. It's an invitation It is His honor and joy to bring you into eternal rest through the sacrifice of His own blood. We need to remember the grace and mercy of God. So Jesus spent some time, though not a lot of time, on the mountain with the disciples before the crowd came. So He got some quiet, some food, some rest in order to carry on. And just when the rest began to sink in, the crowd then found a way to Him. And so now we see the compassionate eyes of Jesus are on His people. Verses 5-9. through The compassionate eyes of Jesus are on His people. I love this language here. It's an idiomatic statement. Lifting up His eyes. Lifting up His eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward Him. This statement is really to draw one's attention to or direct it towards something, looking closely at it, to notice it, to see it. But there's a component. It's complemented with not an eye roll, like, oh, here they come again. Not a sigh of frustration or discontentment, but with compassion. John's Gospel doesn't use the word compassion, but Mark's Gospel does. In chapter 6, it says, Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot 
from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Mark six thirty three and 34. He had compassion and he cared for these people. He wasn't irritated by them. He wasn't bothered by their presence. But he saw them like sheep without a shepherd. And so what he did was, he wasn't just teaching the people, though that's what he had done. He had spent much time with them. He was also using this as an opportunity to teach his disciples a lesson. So then as the crowd comes in and Jesus is inviting and welcoming to them because he has compassion on them, he turns to his disciples, first Philip. So he said to Philip, so here's the crowd. So uh, where do we buy the bread so that these people can eat? And he said this to test them, for he himself knew what he would do. (laughs) Jesus was not surprised by this. He didn't ask Philip, hey, seriously, I don't know how we're going to feed all these people. And we can assume that Jesus was concerned about this because he had taken a lot of time to teach these people and it had come to an hour in the day where they had no access to food immediately. They weren't going to be able to get back to wherever they needed to in time to eat before it fell completely dark. And so Jesus wanted to respond, but he wanted to test the hearts of his own disciples. And so you think, you think, if the disciples understood the Old Testament, if they understood the provision of the Father, the one who made it rain manna from heaven, their initial response would be, well, let's just ask the Father. If he did it for the Israelites in the wilderness, surely he can do it here. Right? That would be the textbook Bible answer, but that's not what takes place. Philip answered him on the level of marketplace answers. Well, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to even get a little bite, a little sliver. 200 denarii is equatable to about six to eight months worth of wages that would provide for a single family to eat. And so here we have thousands of people, at least 5,000 men, perhaps triple the amount when you consider women and children. So it could be 10 up to 20,000 people, but we don't know for sure. And so Philip is just like many of us saying, you know, how much money is it going to take to solve this problem? Right? It's like we look at this church building and go, how much money is it going to take to solve this problem? (laughs) And we go, well, we don't really have all the money, but the Lord is going to provide. There's no bitterness here, just so you know. I'm not freaking out, just for any of you who have no idea who I am. And so Philip says, hey, we got a problem because we don't have enough money. And then Andrew pipes up and he says, well, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Pulls this kid in. So Andrew highlights the only food in sight, perhaps, and saying that it equally lacks by comparison. I think maybe the only illustration I could give is that imagine you're at a, a football game, a professional football game, and there's, I don't know, 50, 60,000 people in the stands and you have your nachos and your hot dog. That's all you have. And perhaps a Coke, okay? And you have to share it with everybody there. Like this ain't happening, right? And I think that's the point. 
being able to highlight and see the impossibility of what is before them. But there's also something unique here, the mentioning of barley bread. James Boyce says, Barley bread was the cheapest of all bread and was held in contempt. Barley bread was the kind of bread prescribed by the Mishnah as a meal offering for the sin of adultery because, says the Mishnah, adultery is the sin of a beast and barley is the food of beasts. It wasn't looked on very highly, shall we say. So not only was there food, but the only food available was the bottom of the barrel food, a poor man's food. And so that it highlights then even further the extremity of the situation and that even that Jesus can take the most despised of foods and make it a blessing for the people. As disciples, we have to continue to grow in compassion for others. We need to see others as Christ sees others. That's kind of the first things first that we need to do as we're praying for the needs of others. Like as we prayed for the people of Afghanistan, we need to first have compassion for them, love for them, seeing that they're made in the image and the likeness of God, even the Taliban. So the question is, do you view people with compassion or with contempt? Do you view people with compassion or contempt? How do you look at people who bother you? How do you look at your spouse who bothers you? How do you look at your kids who bother you? How do you look at your boss who bothers you? Your professor who bothers you? The kid in class who answers all the questions and won't stop talking. How does that person bother you? How about the people who constantly ruin your quiet time? Right? Like, I finally just got some time alone with the Lord and someone just, hey, what's going on? They're like, ah! When Jesus saw the people, he was in the middle of his quiet time, right? He saw them as people without a shepherd. And he sought to shepherd them. Even if their theology was completely whack. Even if it was completely wrong. And so I want to call us as the people of God to have that compassionate, shepherding-like quality towards people first. May that be our lead foot or the front door in our relationship with them. And then from that point, instruct their understanding of the Word of God. I think if our, our lead foot is, how can I just correct this guy? Or how can I just correct this crowd and just fix their wrong way of thinking? We're not thinking like a shepherd. We need to have eyes like Jesus and look upon others with compassion in order to win them over to the Lord with the hopes they will follow us on the mountain and then we have opportunity to teach them the things of God. When you look upon those in need with the compassionate lens of Jesus, how are you then evaluating the situation? How do you evaluate Are you evaluating the situation or the need or the distress based on the resources you have available? Or are you evaluating it by what the Father has? Philip and Andrew were going, hey, look, we don't have the resources here. But that was the point. Jesus is saying you're looking at the wrong place. Jesus sees our greatest needs and our struggles. He even sees the greatest suffering we have, some have to endure, 
And amidst it all, He wants you to see that your greatest resources, your greatest solutions are not what's in front of you, but what it is that He has to offer. This is why we prayed even for the church of Afghanistan, for the people of Afghanistan. Their greatest hope and resource is not us or our money or our strategies, but Christ alone. It doesn't mean we're inactive, we don't do anything, we turn a blind eye or a deaf ear. That's not what I'm saying at all. But we have to turn to Christ. He's more aware of the situation than you and I could ever be. He's more resourceful. He can make the Taliban drop to their knees in a moment. You and I don't have that kind of power, that kind of resource. But only God does. He sees us, and that's the thing. He lifts His eyes to us, but often we fail to see Him. Or blind to him. Can you hear Jesus ask the question that he knows you're going to fail at answering just to open your eyes? Here's some for example. How much money do you think you will need to solve your marriage issues? Could you imagine him asking you that question? And you're like, well, let me calculate it. And he's like, you idiot. <laughs> What resources do you have right now that can help rescue all the people in Afghanistan? Do you think that a library of parenting books will help you love and lead your children better? How many more jobs can you hold down to make rent and maintain sanity and health? What are you going to do to save or help or rescue the suffering in this community? in the nation, around the world. He asks these questions so that we can see the level of impossibility within our own selves, within our own means, with our own strategies, within our own methods. And again, He's not saying for us not to do anything, but He wants our knee-jerk reaction not to be, okay, how can I fix this problem, but to go to the One who provides manna from heaven. That's the first response. And if your first response is, well, here's the solution, then you're missing the point of our calling and what it is that the Father provides. Adam read it from this morning, this passage this morning. We have everything we could possibly need for living in godliness. So Jesus is calling us to the One who has an eternal supply of resources that we need, even if those resources sometimes seem like bottom-of-the-barrel resources. Sometimes the best place we can be is in a complete state of need with no real solution. Because what happens when you realize you're completely and without answers or solutions you turn to the one who does have answers and does have solutions. And that is the point. We are to always go to the Father and not just when we think of it last. And here's some encouragement. Wherever the Lord has us follow Him, He is gracious to provide. Jesus calls us to follow Him. And as we follow Him in obedience, He's not going to just leave us hanging. He's not going to leave us high and dry. He is going to be gracious to provide for us. And even more abundantly than we could possibly ever ask or need. 
And so as disciples, he has called us to follow him in every aspect of life. Are you going to him first with your next to impossible situations in life? If not, how come? So the Lord looks upon his people, revealing to them the greatest need and with great compassion and a unique and holy relationship he has with the Father, he petitions the Father on our behalf. And so verses 10 through 13, the compassionate eyes of Jesus are the compassionate eyes of the Father. The compassionate eyes of Jesus are the compassionate eyes of the Father. Jesus said to them, after they failed, after the two disciples completely failed at answering his question, he said, look, have the people sit down. (laughs) Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. This idea of sitting down, it's one of peace and calming. It's not chaotic. It's not like, okay, you run over here, you organize this, you get the plates, you get the forks, you get the cups. It's none of that. It's not mobilizing people to go do that. He's saying, sit down. And he begins to direct the attention of the people upward to where it should have been from the beginning. So Jesus took the loaves of this boy and he had given thanks. And if Jesus was giving kind of a traditional Jewish sort of prayer, especially during the time of the Passover, he is not asking the Father to bless the food. His prayers are a blessing to the Father. This is a time of worship and acknowledgement of the Father. And then the Father responds. And we don't have the details of how this happened, how the, how the bread continued to multiply and the fish began to multiply, but it did, and it says that He distributed them to those who were seated. He didn't just hand out the food Himself. He actually used His disciples to disperse the food. We see that as well in the other Gospels. Jesus had no intention of taking this on Himself. He gave attention to the Father. The Father blessed Jesus then dispersed to the people through the disciples. Jesus is not a one-man show. Though He has every right to be, He's not a one-man show. Very humble. Very selfless in that way. And so what we begin to see is the compassion of the Father being worked out through the Son and then worked out through the disciples. And the compassion of the Father was on full display full display not even rome could make this happen 10 to 20,000 people food in an instant wouldn't happen only the father in heaven could do this and here's the thing the father is not stingy and short supplied he's not keeping a budget going hey look we can only get up to this point all right that's what we do in our house like hey look i know you kids are going to eat 20 times more than we give you. You've got to have one serving so that all of us can eat. The Father's not doing that. Have it in abundance. As much as you want, as much as you need, there was no short supply of the food given to the people. In fact, there was so much that there were leftovers. In verse 12, And when they had eaten their fill, He told His disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So not only does he give an abundance, but he doesn't waste any of it. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. 
He had enough to supply for all of His people. And more theologically significant here, He supplies for the twelve tribes of Israel more symbolically here. A bigger picture of God supplies for the church, for His people. Jesus comes to us, lifting His eyes up, looking upon us with compassion. And He calms us in the most dire of situations. Just sit down, son. Sit down. And when we may be anxious to try to figure out a solution, Jesus then calms us and redirects our attention from self and to the, to the Father. And He calls upon and blesses the Father on our behalf. He's the one interceding for us. And He has a desire to be a help for us. And I'm not, I'm choosing those words intentionally. He has a desire to be a help for us. How do I know this? Because after Jesus ascended, He sent out the Holy Spirit, also named the Helper. With that very purpose, to help us. It's not a game. He's not joking with us. He's not like, nah, psych. I didn't really want to help you. No, He actually wants to help us. He desires that. That is why He sent His Son, Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit. And instead of complaining about your hunger or struggling situation, turn to Him and bless Him with praise and then watch Him respond with help. Watch Him provide in ways you would least expect Him to provide. Look, part of the help we have is Jesus as that mediator, as that intercessor, petitioning the Father on our behalf. And that is a great joy that we have for those of us who are in Christ. He calls us to follow Him. And as we follow Him, we realize we are in need not just physically, not just emotionally, but also spiritually. And so we call upon Him to provide. And Jesus says, I'll petition the Father on your behalf. And it is a joy for Him to do so. And so the Father continues to hear us because of our faith in Jesus. Does it hear us and see us and know us and remember us because of our works or how good we are? But because of our faith in Christ. So He will never turn a deaf ear to us because He never turns a deaf ear to His own Son. So how does the Father supply our needs? There's many ways. Through His Word. Through the miraculous works of miracles and signs, He does this. Through prayer. But in context of this passage, we even see it through His people. Through His people. Ephesians chapter 4 says this, There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Did you catch, did you catch that? So the Father is the Father of all, he is over all. He works through all. He works in all. This is how the Father works through His people. The Father provides through His people. The church is built up in love, Paul says, 
through the body of Christ. This is how the Father encourages His people. I don't know if any of you have heard God the Father speak audibly here on Sunday morning, or perhaps in one of the creepy rooms throughout the building, but He hasn't, I'm most certain. But what He has done is that He has spoken truth and love and encouragement through His Word, through His people, to one another. I wasn't a shot at the temple building. Sorry, guys. (laughs) The Father provides through His people. And the Father is not in short supply. He wants to provide for you and I abundantly. He doesn't want to serve us. He doesn't want to, you know, cut it off. So then my, my call to you is, do not rob the Father of the opportunity to provide. Granted, you don't have power over the Father. I understand this. But don't rob the Father the opportunity to provide. Do not rob the church the opportunity to serve you as the Father leads them to. To reject the body is to reject the Father. Some of us want to just manage the things ourselves. We got this under control. I can do this myself. I don't need everybody's help. I don't want to be a nuisance. I don't want to be a burden to anybody. Like You hear those things. But that is anti-biblical. The Father is saying, no, no, this is how I supply your needs. And when you run away from it and you, do, you take care of it all on your own, you are doing it in your own power, in your own strength, and eventually it will fail you. But the Father is saying, press into the body. And we as Spirit-filled believers, it is a real joy when people say, I need, I need something. I need help with this. And then it gives us an opportunity to share the love of the Father with them. So don't rob us that joy. And pertaining to this work, we are to seek the Father first. And when He answers, we respond as the hands and the feet of Christ. And that sort of response keeps us from being inactive, but it centers our actions on faith in Jesus, not dependency upon some sort of temporary means and resources. And it helps us focus to worship Jesus. And so the compassionate eyes of Jesus proves to be the compassionate eyes of the Father as it is displayed in the miraculous provision of bread and fish But unless the hearts of those receiving the provision of the Father are changed, they will only see the provision as an answer to their own wants and needs, not to what God is actually doing. So we see last in verses 14 and 15, the compassionate eyes of Jesus are focused on God's economy. The compassionate eyes of Jesus are focused on God's economy. So the people saw the sign again. They were already impressed with the signs of Jesus before. That's what drew them to the other side of the sea. And so they saw the sign that He had done, and they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Again, a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18. A prophet who would come after Moses. One who is greater than Moses. This is one that Jesus spoke about in the verses prior last week when we, when we discussed. Jesus was admitting that He is the fulfillment of that passage to Moses. Moses spoke of Him. So Jesus wouldn't necessarily be disagreeing with this. But there's a problem in this assessment. 
They were looking at Jesus as the provider of food, the prophet who would politically rule and restore the kingdom back to his people and overtake Rome. They didn't see Jesus as the king and provider of salvation, of a greater kingdom. They didn't see him as the bread of life. They saw him as one who could solve the issues in, of the land, of the political landscape. And granted, to give them some sort of credit here, you have to understand there was a lot of confusion about who the prophet was or Messiah or what it meant to be the king. And there was a lot of deluding theology that was at work and play. And over the course of time, as I mentioned, the Jews had begun to mold or mesh their theology with their politics so tightly that they began to mis- actually misunderstand what God was up to as far as the coming Christ. So verse 15, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take Him by force to make Him king, He withdrew again to the mountain by Himself. Jesus didn't take up the megachurch like He could have. The crowd, their heart was bent on a political Savior. They were mustering up the courage to bring Jesus before Rome really in a revolutionary fashion, ready to overthrow. That's why that idea of force has some strength behind it. Like, this is our guide. This is our opportunity. Now is the time to rise up Israel. But Jesus perceives that, and He decides to head off to the mountain by Himself. Some could see that as Jesus really missing this big opportunity to teach the people who the Messiah is give them a correct theology, a correct understanding of Scripture. But in reality, Jesus was doing the only thing necessary in order for their eyes to be open and see Him as the true King. He has to get to the cross, not to a political throne. The crowd won't see Jesus rightly until He dies for their sins. And so He goes away. Because honestly, if he became their political king, it would do nothing if their hearts were still dead. Do absolutely nothing. To change a political landscape, a human economy, hearts have to be made alive. But the end is not changing the world's political landscape, but for the hearts to be changed to God's kingdom, God's economy. So sometimes, church, we get so focused on the big nationwide, worldwide issues of our time that we overlook the fact that individuals have dead hearts. And dead hearts create broken structures and politics and landscapes, leadership, economies. And so I thank God that Jesus lifted His eyes of compassion on our hearts more than on our political landscape. Not that we ignore those things. I'm not saying that at all. But that we understand our salvation. We understand Jesus' rule. God's provision is not dependent upon our political landscape or the evening news. But it is based on Christ alone. Christ alone. If you want to see things change in our life, if you want to see things change in politics, if you want to see things change in the economy, if you want to see equity 
in the landscape of humanity, then we have to first see hearts change. We need a heart revolution. That's what is needed. That is what is required. That's why we prayed for the Taliban. When our hearts are changed, we begin to operate. Gosh, I lost my my space. When our hearts are changed, we begin to operate with God's economy. In God's economy, we worship and give supreme allegiance to Jesus as our King. And we honor all authorities and institutions, human authorities and institutions, as under Jesus. We seek the continual provision of the Father, trusting Him for our daily bread. We never go hungry or thirsty because we are always feasting and living on the bread of life and living waters. We never go unclothed because we are always clothed in the righteousness of Christ. All of our needs are supplied through the care of the Father through the church. Because we love Jesus, we have complete access to the endless resources and treasures of heaven. It's a completely different economy. We all want Jesus and we all want Him until He calls us to sacrifice and He challenges us to grow. When He challenges us and grows us, we will either respond in one of two ways. Complaining, like Israel did in the wilderness, or we will respond with contentment. The very crowd that is before Jesus Jesus, and the crowd that is attempting to raise him up as, as king is not understanding who Jesus actually is. And once they actually understand who he is, the crowd will slowly evolve from being his number one fan to being his number one enemy. And many of them will cry out, crucify him in those days. So church, do you want Jesus for who he is? Or will you complain, grumble, and cry out, crucify him? It looks like Israel saying, why did you bring us out of Egypt? We had everything we needed. We had food, we had shelter, we had water. Do you trust Jesus more than your present circumstances? Or is the measurement of your trust in him based on your circumstances? James Boyce said it best, that is what we do with God. God tells us to do something, and the first thing we do is attempt to stare him down. We want to see if he really means it. See if we we can call his bluff, intimidate him a little bit. Are you staring God down, wondering if he's really going to do what he says? Or are you going to take him up on his word by faith? Do you want what the Lord can provide for your dire situations? Or do you want the Lord who can provide for your dire situations? Do you want what He gives to you? Or do you want Him? I wish I could tell you I'm a perfect father. I've already admitted that I'm not. I wish I could tell you I'm the most compassionate person. I am not. As often as my kids beg for my attention to watch them, there are more times than not that I I don't have my eyes on them. 
I cannot tell you how many times my kids have asked me to watch them do something. And after they do their thing, they go, hey, did you see? And I had to be honest and say, no, I I really didn't see it at all. (laughs) And it could be frustrating. And they're like, okay, well, I'm going to do it again. And sometimes it's laziness. Uh, Sometimes it's just purely the inability to multitask. Uh, in the moment, and sometimes I'm just selfish and I don't care. I care about me more than I do my own children. And I know that resonates with many in the room. But this is never the Father in heaven. Never the Father in heaven. Our Father never loses sight of His children. The Father is always seeing us. He always is hearing us. He always is knowing us. He's always remembering His covenant with us through the blood of Jesus. He is good. He is compassionate. He is perfect. He is lovely. And He considers you lovely. The Father is never going to come up short in providing for us that true and living bread from heaven. We're going to fail as parents. We fail as people. I tell my kids all the time, I am going to fail you desperately. But understand, that's because I'm a sinner saved by grace. But the Father in heaven, He will never fail you. He'll never leave you. He is good. He's compassionate. So church, your Father in heaven is a wonderfully compassionate Father who has His eyes on you in the wilderness of life. He seeks to serve you through His Son Jesus and bring you to rest and trust in His eternal economy and goodness. The compassionate eyes of the Father are on you through Jesus.